I'd like to begin this evening by reading a very, very well-known quote. Some of you will have heard this many times uh, from Ajahn Chah. Do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So we hear these teachings. It's beautiful, elegant, and simple. Our whole path and and fruition of the path is often summed up as a liberation through non-clinging. Right? And then we go to put it in practice and we find we can't do it. I mean, you, could, you, you can do it in a moment, of course, right? Many moments, all of us can do it. But what I mean is, as soon as the right causes and conditions come together, the particular experience, and we're just hooked right back in, we completely forget, we don't even know why we're suffering, you know, we're just lost. So we need some help. You know, um, we really don't need the Buddha to tell us about suffering at all. We don't. We're all experts. We know all about it. What we don't, what we need some help with is what to do. What to do. So, we need to back up a bit, expand back. What will be supportive in helping us to actually uh, live more authentically, more deeply from this place of non-clinging to actualize in our lives. We step back. Well, what's the cause of the clinging? Well, then we have the Four Noble Truths. Okay, let's try that. First Noble Truths, dukkha, this suffering and the cause is clinging. Second Noble Truth saying, what's the cause? Craving, the word tanha, which means thirst, literally. And you get the sense of you know, that, the, that word thirst so, that's the place to, to pay attention. Um, so, we start to work there. And what do we find out? Can't do it. You can do it in a moment. In many moments. Soon as the, whatever, the pleasant experience, person, thing, the unpleasant, we want, it, we want more of the pleasant, we want to get rid of the unpleasant. We hear this all the time. It's so simple. Yet, and we're not, I want to say, we're not doing anything wrong. The Buddha wasn't saying, oh ye fools. He was pointing out what it is to be a human being. This tendency, conditioned patterns, it's deeply, deeply habituated in us. If you take, you know, single-celled organisms Right? And if, like the ones that, an amoeba or whatever, if they like the light and you shine the light, they'll kind of move towards it. Or if they don't like it, they, or you put the food or nutrients, right? It's deeply wired into us. Right? So it's just pointing out really the human condition. That's what it's pointing to. And so. Um, I want to read you one more quote here. This is from someone who is not a Buddhist. He's a, I don't even know if he's still alive. He was one of my first teachers in the early 1970s when, uh, like Philip, I practiced in some of these Hindu-oriented yoga traditions. His name is uh, Hari Das. I studied with him in Santa Cruz for a number of years. Here's what he says. And when you're listening to this, notice how it lands for you. Does it ring true? Does it not ring true? See how it is for you. Here's what he says. Our lives are based on assumptions about ourselves and the world around us that are thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impair our ability to function. Uh, Wait, he's just warming up. (laughs) These assumptions are more than intellectual beliefs. I am a human mind in a human body. Let me just pause there. That's an astounding statement. Whether it's true or not, what he's saying is, so we need to look and investigate and see. 
we don't just accept it or reject it. We look and see. But I want you to get this. He's saying this quote, I am a human mind in a human body is thoroughly out of touch with reality and seriously impairs our ability to function. Totally going again. You know, if you weren't here at Spirit Rock, people would think you're crazy if you said that. So we're asking to really take a different perspective on things. And, and just let me go on from here. He says, in fact, this notion is so deeply rooted in our consciousness that few of us would ever think of questioning it. We live our entire existence from this point of view, seeking those things, situations, and people that make us happy and avoiding those things that make us unhappy. Uh, anybody here doing that? Anybody here not doing that? No. I said this the other night. There's no one here. This is my other talk that I know well. Some people I've known for a while. I don't know anyone intimately here. And I can say with certainty, I'm just repeating, every one of us here are trying to get more of what we want and less of what we don't want. Right? Nobody here is trying to get more of what you don't want and less of what you want. No one. So he's just pointing out just that fact of being a human being. Here's where it gets interesting. But even when conditions seem ideal to us, there is always that nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will eventually change, that the security and happiness of the moment will ultimately be lost. In truth, we are never totally at peace. There is always something to be anxious about. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. So when we start to practice and strengthen our mindfulness and clear comprehension and the stability, the samadhi, the, the undistractedness, and what is it we do? We close our eyes. You could practice with your eyes open. You bring your attention into this process of your own mind and body to plumb the depths, to really come to know, see, understand, experience directly the true nature of our own being. One of the things you find out, if you look, I, I, I'm arguing, is that um, Haridas is right. Just pay attention sometimes, if you don't already do it, to what's going on in your own mind. What percentage of your thoughts are some version of, am I okay? Am I going to be okay? How am I going to be okay? Am I doing it right? I'm not doing it good enough. I'm worried about this. I'm anxious about this. It'll vary for each of us. Just notice for yourself. Let's just put it this way. For a lot of people, it's a lot. It's a lot. Right? We start to really notice. Man, this, is, this mind is going like a lot. So that tends to drive us, if not seen. Right? So here's what Haridas then says. He says, real spirituality... Therefore, then, has nothing to do with stoicism and self-denial or disregard for worldly responsibility. And then here's the, the bottom line to what he's saying, which I love. Spirituality means learning how to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. It's beautiful. How can we learn to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma? Right? This is where we need some help. So going back to what I was saying, this tanha, this thirst, just, just spend a little more time on this. How many desires have you fulfilled in your life? Has it ever done it for you? I mean, it, of course, in the moment, there's the satisfaction, for sure. I'm not denying that at all, of course. Until the next craving comes along. We're right back in this cycle. Seeking our happiness in those, as Haridas says, in those situations, people, things that we think will make us happy and avoiding those that will make us unhappy. Just a f three or four years ago, my daughter, who was in college at the time, her car died. And so I had a perfectly good car. It was 10 or 12 years old. So I decided, okay, I'll give her that car and get a new car. So we decided to get a Prius. I was happy. I was at peace, going about my business, not bothering anybody. All of a sudden, I'm craving a Prius. I'm seeing Priuses everywhere. 
I had never noticed him before. I'm noticing every Prius. It was a lot of suffering. Now, I was quite aware of what was happening in my mind. I could see it was just a conditioned arising, but it was uncomfortable. So I tried letting go. I tried this. and What I found is I needed to back up another step. It wasn't just understanding and knowing the, the, the second noble truth. I had to uh, really work it w- with what Andreas beautifully, I thought, talked about last night of really what the heart of our practice is, is working with these three characteristics in service of insight. That is in service of the non-clinging. And that's in service of the liberation. So I had to back it up. So what I did, finally, I just said to my mind, all right, fine. If that's the way you're going to be about it. We'll just sit here and suffer (laughs) and see how you like that. (laughs) And I did. I turned right into the suffering. There's this image, or it's not an image. They say if you're driving um, on an icy road and you go into a skid, you know, the habitual reaction is to turn away from the skid. You're actually supposed to turn into the skid, right? But it's counterintuitive. That's what we're talking about here into the skit, into the suffering. The suffering's not a problem. It's your teacher. It's my teacher. And so I could really, you know, we, want, we say we want to understand the nature of suffering, but we don't want to, ex- how do you understand something? You have to experience it, but nobody wants to suffer. We don't need to seek out suffering. You get plenty of opportunities. You don't have to go looking. It, it comes to find you. Right? If we could get that, you don't need anything else. You don't need samadhi. If you could really just get that, it's enough. It's everything. Right? Using the, Switching our relationship. This is what I meant the other night when I said a big shift came in my practice when I began to get just as interested in my suffering, actually even more interested in my suffering than I was in my bliss. This is what I'm talking about. That's your teacher. So I have good news and bad news. What do you want first, the good news or the bad news? I'm going to give you the bad news first. You're going to lose the meditative state, the peak meditative states that you cultivated on this retreat. They're conditioned states. We say over and over, it's not about the states. The part that endures is the wisdom, the real qualities that lead to opening the heart and clarity. Those carry through the non-clinging, the liberation, whether you're in meditative retreat consciousness or everyday street consciousness. The heart and mind can rest at peace. Freed of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not dependent on a state. I also want to say just as an aside that um, that's not 100% accurate what I'm saying because certainly you can keep up uh, uh, in daily life quite profound, deep meditative states. But I'm just trying to make a point here. For most of us, what's going to happen is you're going to go back to what daily life consciousness looks like. And then from there, of course, we want to continue working in daily life, cultivating non-distractedness and all that too. And you actually can have quite deep samadhi in daily life for sure. But you get my point. You're going to lose your peak experiences. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. You're going to lose your peak meditative experiences when you go home. That's the good news. Why is it good news? That's your teacher. If you notice yourself suffering or clinging, and it's a bright light when it happens, you don't have to go looking. Turn into the skid. Feel that longing. We don't say this to beginners, but to you all, these are your advanced practitioners. Let it burn. (laughs) Don't try to make it burn. Don't get lost in it. Don't wallow in it. But if you really, all you're doing is opening to whatever's actually happening in your present moment experience. If what that is is suffering, and we can pop out of our habitual reaction to no, no, and oh my God, or whatever, and, right? And remember, 
turn to it, feel. That's learning that, wow, yeah, craving is the cause and condition for clinging, which is the cause and condition for dukkha. Right? So that's the context. But we often forget. We need to back up. This talk is actually about the four foundations of mindfulness tonight. This framework, you know, we've had these, all these frameworks of practice because we need to strengthen our mindfulness and our clear comprehension to actually see what's going on so we're not so lost and to see more clearly. And that's where the four foundations of mindfulness comes to play. And so I'm going to spend the rest of the talk, I'm going to very briefly, and this is going to be brief, outline what the four foundations of mindfulness are. I'm not going to go into detail. Some of you are familiar with this, and for some of you it may be new. And you know how we've been saying, don't try to remember all this? Of all nights, please, don't try to remember all this. It's too much detail, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Let it go in, let it land, and let your mind stay open and spacious. In general, in your, in your Dharma practice life, I want to encourage you, you know, how there's, if, even for those who aren't inclined to much study, this Satipatthana, Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta in particular, is something that in the long term, of course, you'll hear many talks about it, and you can absorb it that way. It may be worth really doing some study on. It's a lifetime of study and gaining fluency with it. And then at some point, it's all there. You don't have to think it's just there. But for now, we're going to go over it. And then I'm going to spend most of the time looking at some of the range of ways that people engage with it. There's not just one way it's put into practice. And in fact, one of the things I've just appreciated so much in Spirit Rock in general, and it's been manifesting on this retreat, is, you know, oftentimes we'll say, well, you know, some people will approach it this way and that way. It's finding what's the skillful means. And it doesn't mean that we don't have an opinion or that we don't practice in certain ways, but we recognize that we're each, you know, we're not all the same. And so what's needed, one approach is a natural fit for people and then other people may come at it from a slightly different way. So I'm going to name some of these for putting it into practice. Some of the ways I'll name, you will recognize as what you've been doing. And others may open up to, oh, that's an interesting perspective. I'll try it on. And then if there's time at the end, I'll say a little bit, and I'll be very brief about possibly how it links into this concentration practice. How, so we'll see how that goes. Okay. So this is a framework. It's a structure for practice to take us into what I was talking about earlier, the direct, lived opening to these insights into what we talk about as the three characteristics. And Andrea covered that very, very clearly and thoroughly. That's the point. So let me just say briefly what the four foundations of mindfulness are. There are these four, it, it, the, the, it, it, let me back up. It's a way of mapping out really every aspect that I can think of in what, in what it is to be a human being and how we can apply mindfulness to that. So the first foundation is called mindfulness of the body. And it's, I'll come back in a bit, but there's six different practices. What we've been practicing here, mindfulness of breathing, we've actually been practicing the very first of the six Mindfulness of the body practices. So you think you've been doing a concentration practice, which you have. You've also been doing four foundations of mindfulness practice. We've been emphasizing the concentration aspect of it. But So anyway, we'll come back to that in a bit. Mindfulness of the body. Second foundation is this term you've been hearing, Vedana, which Vedana means sensations. Sensation, we call it feeling. But what we're particularly interested in is the fact that some sensations are pleasant, some sensations are unpleasant, and some, we tend to say neutral, but it actually says neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's that aspect of the sensations that's really of interest in 
the second foundation. And of course, that's because, as I was saying earlier, it's the, it's the, that's what conditions the mind to want more of the pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant. So we start bringing mindfulness right to that process. That's what the second foundation is about. Third foundation is about states of the mind. Chittas is this word. So we sometimes say mind or heart. And there's a particular list. We're not going to get into that much, but it's like, it's for example, knowing if greed, hatred, and delusion is present in the mind or not. So, you know, if you're watching, if you're being mindful of knee pain, for example, okay, that's fine, that's mindful. Sometimes we may not notice that it's, that our, the attitude we're bringing to that might be tinged with some aversion. We want to know that. So this, this is an example of the third foundation is actually knowing uh, the qualities of mind. Right. And there's some other qualities listed in there too, but for our purposes, uh, we'll leave it at that. So we have first foundation is mindfulness of the body. Second is that all sensations are either pleasant, unpleasant, or in between somehow. The third foundation is states of the mind. And then the fourth foundation um, is, is more um, intricate. And I'll just touch on it briefly so you get the idea. I have a feeling a few of you may be trying to uh, do what I recommended you don't do. It's up to you, of course, but uh, it's fine. People are taking notes. No, no, I'm not. It wasn't whether you're taking notes or not, but I'm just, <laughs> just want to, as a friendly reminder to, because it's too much to remember in just one talk. It may not be too much to remember, but whereas you're going to see when we come back to practice, when we come back to practice, it comes back to simple. Okay. Fourth foundation is, so you know, Buddhism is sometimes called a religion of lists. <laughs> By the way, there's actually lists of lists. So, um, yeah. So, this, this last is the foundation is called mindfulness of dhammas or in the Sanskrit it would be dharmas. If you recall um, when I was talking about the seven factors of enlightenment I said one of the important definitions or understandings of the term dhamma is phenomena or things from a dharma perspective. That's what we mean right here, dhamma. So here's these things, it's these lists and I'll, I'll just go through them quickly just so you've heard it. So just let it go in. Let it go out. First, I'll just name the lists and then I'll say a little bit more. Five hindrances. Be mindful of five hindrances. Five aggregates. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to get into that tonight. So most of you probably do. Six sense bases. So it's what we think of as the all five senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touch as body sensations. Six is called the mind door because the experience is considered a sense door. We experience what goes on in the mind. Okay, let me see. Five hindrances. Hold on a second. Five hindrances, five aggregates, six sense spaces, seven factors of enlightenment, and the four noble truths. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big foundation. I'll, I'll come back in a few moments uh, to talk about how we can apply it in practice. But I'll just add one more, more piece. There's more to that even than that in the fourth foundation because it's not just knowing these, but there's certain insights we have about them. For example, with the five hindrances, we don't only want to have be mindful and clearly comprehending and knowing what's happening. We also want to understand, and this is part of it, what causes the hindrances to arise and what's wise and, I'm paraphrasing, but what's wise and skillful to have them not arise or when they are there to have them, to abandon them or have them subside. So that's part of it. With the six sense bases, it's not only knowing, being mindful when there's seeing, you know seeing is happening. When there's hearing, for example, you know you're mindful. Oh, hearing is happening. So then when, you know, the person falls asleep in the hall and is snoring, that's your teacher. How do we use it as our teacher? We're just mindful. We know hearing, hearing. It's not a problem. It's just what's happening in the moment. The problem is just our minds third foundation of mindfulness. 
greed, hatred, or delusions in the mind. It's all right there for you, every moment, what you need. There are no distractions in this practice. None. There's just what's happening in the moment and how we're relating and working with it. That's it. Are we, are we at peace or are we suffering? Is there greed, hatred, or delusion? We can say not understanding or seeing clearly what's happening. Are we taking, as Andre said, what is uh, fundamentally impermanent to be permanent? Are we thinking that the, what leads to suffering leads to happiness? Are we taking what is not self to be self? That's the delusion or not. So if you're working with the sixth sense basis, for example, there's more. They also want to understand not only the, what's the experience, what is the fetter that arises in relationship to each? And the way to think of it is, what is it about the, that experience that gets us hooked? So, so a story just came to me. I was at Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, and they have, in the fall they have this three-month retreat, and this was, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. And there was this one guy in particular, he was the slowest, most mindful, from the outside at least, looking yogi I'd ever seen. And I had a lot of affection for I just was impressed by, the, by his example of practice. And I had an affectionate nickname in my head. I called him Slow-Mo when I would see him. And so when we would come by, it would be, oh, there's Slow-Mo. Or, or in my mind, I would, you know, just I'd see him in kind of an inner bow and, and, and almost kind of like, hey, how's it going, Slow-Mo? It was just, it was really a... I kind of had a little thing going there about this guy. Then one day, after, there's the lunch. At the end, there's this table with cookies. It's one cookie left. I'm heading for the cookie. <laughs> but not only that, I didn't want to look like I'm zooming for it because I'm going to get it. I had to look slow. So I was using my best fake slow walking. <laughs> So could I find that edge where I'm actually heading for the cookie, but it looks like I'm being mindful and slow. So I'm heading for the cookie. I see slow-mo comes angling in. <laughs> and he's ahead of me. <laughs> Unless I break my <laughs> facade, he's going to go to the cookie. <laughs> and I'm really thinking, oh, no, no. <laughs> It's slow-mo. <laughs> so he gets the cookie. And it shifted my, I remember, and you know, you get in the yogi mind, it shifted my, I had really had a lot of affection for him, and it sh- <laughs> I don't know what, how it happened, but I just had so much, and from then, for a little while, it, was, it wasn't like he was modeling. It was more like, you know, at least when you're going through the food line, you know, out of consideration for the other yogis, you could speed up a little bit. It wouldn't kill your meditation practice. <laughs> I was in this kind of mode, right? I had a lot of aversion. So that was happening for a few days, and then as I was working with it, tried to let it go and everything. But it, the... the it was kind of gripped in the mind. I was, my mindfulness was extremely strong and I, had, and I was sensitive. I'd been like, in a, you know, long into the retreat. So this was very painful. It's not like I was indulging. I actually wanted to end, but I was just watching my mind. So, fourth foundation of mindfulness. Seeing, seeing. What's the fetter that arises in relation? When I see slow-mo, it triggers up some ill will in my mind. That opened the door to me so while I can work with this and soften my heart and kind of, and uh, also, fourth foundation, what gives rise to a hindrance, what is skillful and wise to let it go away. So I said, you know, I'm going to consciously get my food in a way so I'm actually kind of not looking at them and, and really in a skillful way, turning in a different direction. And so I, he was kind of out of my immediate and it allowed the intensity to go down because it would like become a thing, right? <laughs> and it was painful. Who wants to, you know, that's not what I was there for, right? To indulge in my whatever, you know, was going on in my mind. So then as things softened, I was able to consciously turn the mind back to, you know, he was doing the same thing. He didn't know I'm heading for the cookie, 
And I didn't even remember about the cookie, right? There's more cookies later or whatever. And so I was able to work with and soften. And then, of course, the heart opened again and it was able after a few days. So that's where we bring the mindfulness to see what's needed. And this is the kind of idea with the uh, fourth foundation. It's not only what's going on, but what's skillful and how to work. And there's with the seven factors of enlightenment, what, what's skillful in cultivating them and the fourth, four noble truths coming to understand them. So that's necessarily um, you know, much too quick, quick, fast to do justice to the four foundations of mindfulness. But you get the basic idea, right? So I'll just quickly say it again. Mindfulness of the body. Vedana, sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Third is states of the mind. Fourth is then all these dhammas, these lists, not only understanding them, but how to work skillfully with them. So you can see there's a lot there. Let me say a few things now about some different approaches people take in working, and, and these are the common. They're, they're not that different, but they're just slightly different emphasis. And even if you come here for Vipassana retreats, everybody's teaching in a very similar style, but each teacher might have a slightly different emphasis, and so you'll get these different flavors. So if you come on a typical retreat, you oftentimes will be instructed to work for the first day or couple of days and giving emphasis to mindfulness of breathing as we are here. And then as an aid to really help the mind settle. As the mind settles, then the instructions will start to open up and, and, and bring in, and there's different ways that you open up, but the basic idea is consciously not holding onto the breath. Here we've been emphasizing really staying close to the breath, but open it up to a whole range of experiences in the body and then perhaps open up to the Vedna, noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of experience and then opening up further to uh, the states of the mind and even noticing thoughts. Thoughts is actually in the fourth foundation. I would say it's under, uh, under Sankara's in the, let me think for a minute. Yeah, that's why I would put thoughts. The third foundation is not thoughts, it's just mind states. But even noticing thoughts, just our whole range of experience, and we open it up to... So there's nothing outside of the experience that's not included in the mindfulness practice. And that's pretty typical, and I'm, that's probably familiar, what I'm saying to probably most people here. So some teachers may emphasize, as you're doing that, still giving some amount of preference to the breath, not clinging to the breath, but giving some amount of preference to the breath just as a stabilizing factor or a stabilizing base, if you will, or foundation. And then when other of these experiences, we certainly are quite open and willing to let go of the breath if other experiences arise, and sometimes you'll hear it said, that are strong and compelling. And then we that will become, that new experience will become the new main object and we stay with it, we come to know it, work with it in various ways. I'll say more about that in a few moments. Until it changes or subsides or maybe it's not interested or we've had enough, interesting or we've had enough. We'll come back either to the breath or there might be something else up and in this way we're open moment to moment with what's predominant in our experience, right? But there's still a preference, I mean, a, some inclining towards or emphasis on the breath that comes in with that just as an aid. Another way it's taught is once we've stabilized, we don't give any particular, and this is very, very common. Many of you I, I know have reported that you practice in this way that I'm about to describe, or you've certainly heard it taught many times. There's no particular emphasis on the breath. It's just whatever's in our experience, moment to moment. And we can approach that in, in a, a few different ways. One is, it's the sense of, even if we're not giving a preference to the breath, we may still be a sense of directing the mind to objects 
what's predominant and moving the mind to the knee pain. A breath, another breath. So it's like we're treating, it's the sense of objects in the mind going to them. An itch, thinking, thinking. You know, we're just open to the whole range of experience. And then a very different sense is not going to objects, but an opening into, sometimes it's called choiceless awareness and open awareness. And we would tend to describe it using more passive voice verbs, things like instead of directing to the object or connecting with the object, it's more, you know, experiences as they arise and pass away are known clearly. Or it can be like receiving whatever's moment to moment arising and passing away in our experience, right? Allowing, it's, it's that kind of language. And so it gives us spaciousness. It, it's really a sense of an open awareness within which experience is known. Is it, again, there's that passive voice kind of verbs. Experience is known as it arises and passes away. That would be a little bit of, actually it's a lot of a, of a different sense than going towards objects. We may move back and forth between some of those sometimes too. You know, it depends for each of us. Or we may have one predominant style. Another flavor to what I'm just describing um, that I thought was described very clearly, I appreciated Andrea's guided meditation. It was not only opening up to experience, she was actually guiding us to really closely tend to, whether it's that sense of open receiving or directing towards the changing nature when you connect to the experience. Actually knowing, experiencing that aspect of the experience in, in the mindfulness practice. So that, we could say a lot more about it, but for now that's another flavor. Okay. So if what I've said so far Seem familiar? Probably, I'm guessing, to most people. Yeah, I see a lot of... Okay. Another way that it's often taught is we taught, talk about the impermanence, but it's not emphasized in necessarily looking for the change, but it's more connecting with the experience and with... and that, 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 real, that opening into impermanence and change just reveals itself and you're not going looking so much. That's something that I've, I've practiced in all these styles, but that's one I've had some interesting experience and it's hard to describe, but think for yourself in your own practice. There are, probably for many of you, if I pick any experience and if I say, can you feel or know or sense that experience, it could be in the body or a mental experience. You could probably say, yep, yep, I can experience that knee pain or, you know, just the pressure of my buttocks on the cushion or my feet on the floor. And then I, I would say, can you notice the aspect of change in that experience? And what's common is, and I realize I'm making a gross, you know, a grand generalization here, but for many people, they, they would say, I'm, what mostly just pops out to my awareness is the experience itself. If I make a point to notice it, yeah, I can notice that it's changing. An interesting thing can happen in practice when you're really opening to these insights, and it's hard to explain, but you just, I'll just say it and just know it can happen. It can flip completely around. So if someone's, if I would report, I can say, if I make a point to notice, yeah, I can know the experience itself. But what's really just popping out to the, to the, is the fact of change. And when it's happening, it's just such a deep, direct experience into this insight. Why is it important to have these insights? I'll, I'm going to come back in a few moments to the Four Foundation of Mindfulness, but I wanted to... Um, say something about this in the service of letting go. When I was a little kid, I was thinking I was about five, I had a, um, a cowboy costume. And it was, you know, you're, I was five years old. There's a picture of me, just, just, you know, cute little five-year-old boy. I have my hat, vest, 
boots, chaps, holsters, and guns. And I have a vague memory of walking around thinking I was the coolest thing. And not only that, but if anybody saw me, they would think I was the coolest thing in my cowboy. It was just, you're right, a little kid, right? When I got older, when I was a teenager, I just wasn't into my cowboy outfit anymore. <laughs> I didn't have to do anything to make it go away. My perceptions of life and myself and experience had shifted such that it dropped away. This is exactly what happens, why the heart of why insights are the direct supporting causes into the liberation through non-clinging. When we really get it about impermanence deeply, it has a profound effect when we really get it deeply about dukkha, that the way we think leads to other insights you can have equally as profound. The way we always go about, as we've been saying, our happiness in the nature of experience. Something just lets go because it's so obvious that it, it, it just makes no sense anymore and something drops away. And it's, it's in that non-clinging and letting go that these states of, you know, it's this cliche of inner peace, but it's, it's not really a cliche. It's just, it's so fundamentally true. When you come on retreat, you know, if the poster said, come to Spirit Rock on retreat, get inner peace, and you sit down and say, God, this isn't peaceful at all. This is suffering. Well, that's just pointing to the work that needs to be done. So this, you can see how this, this, this profound four foundations of mindfulness practice is directly aiming at these, these insights. So a few more ways that um, four foundations of mindfulness can be practiced. It, uh, there are some teachers who will emphasize one. They're open to all of the foundations, but they really put the emphasis on one particular one. So it might be mindfulness of the body and just all the emphasis is there. Turns out you get everything else anyway. Some teachers will really emphasize maybe the third foundation about um, the states of the mind more than anything. Well, you still have all the experiences in your body. Think how it was for you on this retreat or how it still is. Even if you're just being mindful of breathing and you're really getting concentrated, everything else is there too, right? I mean, there are times, of course, when it's not there in the moment and we're more, but in general, right, you've got it all there. So you can emphasize certain ones. Not only does it kind of focus in the insight into that foundation, but also um, it's a doorway that they all open up into everything else. That's the beauty. That's why... We can, it's no one-size-fits-all instruction, but more which approach or which style fits for each of us because they're all doorways that open to everything else. So a few other possibilities. You could also think of it, I haven't actually heard it taught formally this way, although there may be teachers who do this. You could think of it as an ever-subtler progression. So say you did nothing, but okay, let's just stay with the breath. As you stabilize it, and the concentration, so your steadiness and undistractedness strengthens. The clarity of the, the, what we call the mindfulness and clear comprehension, really, that's, that's the key to everything, strengthens. And together, we're, it's, isn't it after you've been working with your breath, isn't it easier to stay mindful when you're sitting, standing, walking, or lying down? That's the next of the body practices in the first foundation, the four postures. It's said you can become enlightened in any of these postures. Right? There's really nothing else except, uh, just in case you're interested, there is one person uh, recorded who got uh, enlightened in a different posture. You might say, what's different from sitting, standing, walking, or lying down? Ananda was the Buddha's younger cousin and, during the, and, and was also, during the last 25 years of the Buddha's life, he was the Buddha's attendant. And so it's said that, of course, 
that's tremendous, incredible karma. And he got all these teachings. And obviously he was this great practitioner. But it said he was so busy with his duties as the attendant that he, all these other monks, around, monks and nuns, monastics, had been getting enlightened. He wasn't enlightened after the Buddha died. So they were all saying, come on, Ananda, you know, like, you can do it, go for it. So he's practicing, practicing, practicing. And then one night after diligent practicing, he decided to lie down to go to sleep. And something in that letting go as he was on his way down from sitting and he was on his way down to lying down. So you picture him kind of on his, in between two postures. He got it. He was just, it actually points to, I, I, we don't know, but just, this is just the, the traditional story. And so who knows? But the sense is, I can imagine how many of you have reported um, when you could let go, it just all opened up. You know, he kind of, all the conditions had built, the paramis, just all these wholesome, supportive conditions were so ripe and ready. And all he had is that little getting out of the way. So it's like, ah, oh, it goes, just boom. He didn't have to do it. It did him. But anyway, uh, um, I love the stories from the suttas. They just are all inspiring to me. But, um, so that's just one I like. But uh, it points to this letting go. Right? It wasn't only the fruit of the practice. It was the path of practice in the end for him. We stabilize with the four postures. We get even stronger mindfulness, clear comprehension, and undistractedness. And now it's easier to be present with the next of the body mindfulness, the body practices, which is in all activities. Brushing your teeth, going to the bathroom, eating, bathing. There's a whole list they give you. Isn't it true that using the breath stabilizes you? Walk, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, the postures. It becomes easier to open up. We still want to consciously bring the awareness into all activities more than it was before you stabilized. You can see it's a subtler progression. Uh, four elements is one of these practices, and that's a subtler. So anyway, you can see it can be seen as a progression. Oftentimes, we do need to get subtler to start to see the second foundation more clearly of really noticing when pleasant and unpleasant Vedana and not spacing out when it's neutral Vedana are arising. And for people, many people, not everyone, states of the mind, the third foundation is subtler or even in the fourth. So you can think of it as a progression. Here's another possibility. Everything I've been talking about is more prescriptive, telling us what to do. It can be thought of as descriptive of just what happens when you do what we've been doing here, practice mindfulness of breathing. Look into your own practice this week. Forget whether we called it a concentration retreat, of whatever we called it, just your actual experience. Was it true for you? I already know the answer, but uh, um, was it true for you that just by working with the breath, you would have times when, of course, it's the samadhi's happening and that's kind of caught your attention, so you know, you're not paying attention to much else. But isn't it true just by continuing to stay with the breath? There were lots of times where everything else was in there. You just naturally knew what was happening in your body, clearly. You knew if what was happening was pleasant and unpleasant. You just could clearly see the states of your mind. Wasn't that true? Yeah? Yeah, of course it was. This is, this is just another way to think about it in, in the mix of all these other ways. Isn't it true that when you were just through the breath, you had times when, when aversion arise uh, in your mind or greed. You know, there's that person that you really don't like on the retreat or the one you really, really, really do like that you would all, you'd be caught in it sometimes. But you'd also have times when you were aware, you see the person and you knew the greed was coming up or the aversion in your mind you were more aware of. Didn't you have some of that? Fourth foundation. So another way you can think about this is it's, it's a descriptive of the, the, the way the path opens. Now, we want to be informed by all of these, and even with that, there's times when you want to turn your mind to one, in one, to one foundation or another, but it's just another way.
So there may be some other approaches, but I'm just trying to touch on different ways that we can work with the four foundations of mindfulness as we've you know, shifted to more Vipassana orientation in the retreat. And so for the last few minutes in the talk, I just want to tie it back to some different ways that the concentration factor can be thought of to, to work in conjunction with the four foundation of mindfulness, ways, different ways it's taught and different ways it's practiced and experienced. So one way that, and, and it's all, again, it's just a matter of what fits for each of us the best. One very powerful and com- very common way that it's often taught is that we, we will say, um, you know, of course concentration is important, but we don't put a lot of emphasis in, in the teaching because through the act of, even if, say, your practice was just moment-to-moment connecting with whatever's happening in your experience, that applying, the, j- just by, through that mindfulness, of course it deepens concentration, and you get all the concentration you need and so your job, you don't worry about the concentration. It's, you, we don't, um, don't want you to worry about any of it. I mean, you don't need to emphasize it. Tending moment to moment to mindfulness. And everything's covered. It comp- mindfulness comprises everything. Okay? So that's one way. And I'm, I know for many people that's how you've practiced a lot. And you still notice you get, can get very, very deep. And it's true. You get all the samadhi that you need. There's no fixed right amount of samadhi that you need. How much samadhi do you need for insights? How much samadhi do you need in the service of non-clinging? So that's the that's what right? it's not one answer. Okay, another approach that's often taken is is that does emphasize the samadhi, and it might be what we're doing here. First, we're consciously aiming more, uh, giving emphasis to these factors of concentration. And then we're consciously turning to this other kind of practice, Vipassana practice. It's really a different emphasis in any and all of these different ways that I've mentioned. And so we were emphasizing the concentration and then once we go into the Vipassana, it carries in and then again, we just... It's, it's a question of uh, just, we, we tend to the mindfulness. Okay. There are other teachers out there who might, and practitioners who might say, no, 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 gotta have jhana. Period. So there's teachers like that. We know that's not true for any, everyone because there are great masters out there practicing in all these different styles who, as far as I can see, have come to tremendous depths of liberation. So we know for a fact that you can't make a categorical statement that everybody has to have jhana. It's just not true. But let's just say they're emphasizing the, uh, if we forget jhana, just samadhi, they're emphasizing the um, great support that samadhi is, so they want you to aim either towards kinds of jhana that's more of that where you're really in the state of jhana and then you come out of it and then turn your mind it's basically think of it as you know if you want to go um, cut some wood first you have to you know you have to sharpen the knife that this model that I'm talking about right now is we're consciously saying right now I'm sharpening the knife and I know that's what I'm focusing on and I'm not thinking in terms of cutting wood for right now. And you know, you can get really engrossed in sharpening the knife. How sharp can you get it? You could have conventions of people coming together about whose is the sharpest and my way. You, oh, that's how you sharpen a knife? No, no, no. This is how you sharpen a knife. No, that's not right. You could go, right, same thing with John, right? We can just get enamored with that and it's fine, right? I don't, I'm just naming it. I'm not judging it. But at some point, we want to cut some wood. That's the Vipassana in the inside. <laughs> and then there's one last piece on the concentration I'll use to end, which is another way, and some of you have been practicing in this way. 
there's another style in which you can take the concentration all the way, even into John. If it's a different kind of John, it's this open, inclusive John so that instead of the flow of experiences coming to a stop, ultimately, if you took it far enough, the mind comes to a stop, but it's open and spacious and present and for all the, whole, all the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's one where you're, they're kind of merging these two kind of practice different approaches together into sort of one approach. And that would be another way right, of, how, of how we bring concentration in. So you can see for yourself now as you look back and sort of map your own experience onto some of the different ways that I mentioned. And there may be some ways that I mentioned that you hadn't thought of that might, oh, and you might want to open to it and explore and see. I don't know, so right. Yeah. I'm personally um, practicing the do what works school of Buddhism. We want some guidance. We don't want to make things up. Find what works. And I think I can say that um, the fellow teachers here and in general in our tradition are so appreciative of being able to practice and teach at a place like Spirit Rock that really, and with these teachers who really, it's not that, as I said before, it's not that we don't have our own style of practice and have our own ideas, but that we really understand deeply that the most important thing is what's, what, what supports each of us the best to liberation. And it's not just one way. So to end, in, um, I'm just going to give you another quote from Ajahn Chah, also uh, often read quote, to kind of pull all this together into one like the samadhi and the concentration and the insight into one, bring them together to end. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's just, we'll just sit quietly for a few moments together. with great appreciation for this mandala that we, each of us are an element of this beautiful mandala. We each bring our own unique qualities, which is creating this sangha. Or you could think of it as uh, we're each a facet of a jewel. And together, each of us, it could not be there without you. Bring our own unique um, um, aspirations and intentions, our unique approach to practice. And so may the collective power of, of our practice together and this beautiful jewel we've create, we're creating together um, be the cause and condition for um, happiness and peace and really supporting each other to come to an end of suffering.
Thank you all for listening to the Dharma. Um, you have, please enjoy the walking period. <laughs>